0: Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to look, look to you. It's been quite a week. Father, in the midst of this week, we've pondered the funeral of Billy Graham, which we spoke of last week. Now as the dust is settling and the various family members are going back to their homes, global leaders are heading back to their own settings. Take the truths that Franklin Graham had uh, communicated in the midst of the message. Speak to hearts. If there were those attending or those that were watching and streaming of the broadcast, I pray that they have done a turnaround and put faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior which is our prayer this morning for anybody that comes here spiritually curious so glad they're here those that know you those that don't I pray that there is a open arms here as we seek to communicate truth and love from no matter which town people come from there's a wide range of towns of this church minister points of need so father we're asking now is that once again you would warm these hearts you would engage these minds, She would shape these wills. Come here, Father, again now to see Jesus, Him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. At least twice a week, I try to stay up a little later and read biographies or autobiographies because I find so much wisdom that's found in reading of the way in which lives unfold. It's late night reading. I was doing that again this past week and I was reading from the autobiography of Margaret Thatcher. I think Esther would have liked Margaret Thatcher, don't you? She was the Prime Minister, you see, of Great Britain. And in her autobiography, there's got this she has this one particular chapter that's entitled no time to go wobbly, quote-unquote. And the chapter begins that on the morning of Wednesday, the 1st of August, 1990, she makes her way from Heathrow Airport in London to Aspen, Colorado. When 2 a.m. Kuwaiti time on Thursday, the 2nd of August, Iraq carried out a full-scale military invasion, though claiming that was an internal coup and assumed total control. In her autobiography, she tells us that she had made her way to Aspen and was awaiting the arrival of President Bush. He would have come later that morning. "Quote," as is. My want, I set about arguing through the whole problem with his leaders, and by the end, had to find the two main points. By the time I was due to meet him at the main ranch, I was quite clear what must be done. Fortunately, the president began by asking me what I thought. I told him my conclusions in the clearest and most straightforward terms, First: aggressors must never be appeased. We learned that to our cost in the 1930s, leading into World War II. Second, if Saddam Hussein were to cross the border into Saudi Arabia, he'd go right down the Gulf in a matter of days, he would then control 65 percent of the world's oil reserves and could blackmail us all. Not only did we have to move to stop the aggression, therefore, we had to stop it quickly, and I thought of Esther. For in making these two points, I felt that experience as well as instinct enabled me to trust my judgment. We would have to stop the aggression, we would have to stop it quickly, And that's what chapter 7 is all about. What fascinates us here is that Margaret Thatcher speaks of the need to be able to address the threat of evil in that chapter. And what I want to do with you this morning is to go where oftentimes topical messages around the nation don't go, into the harder topics, the themes of the scriptures, and today we're going to deal with the idea of evil. And why did Jesus say in his Lord's Prayer deliver us from evil? What I wanna do with you is look very carefully at this seventh chapter now and to draw out three significant usages here Usages, the means, the ways, the hows by which God equips us when evil is threatening. Maybe at a personal level. Maybe at a national level. Maybe at a global level. Let's dig in. First of all, verses 1 and 2, when evil threatens us, I want you to note with me how God uses what we'll call delayed disclosure to achieve his purposes. Now, you would have thought thus far that Queen Esther would have flexed her muscles and said, I'm the queen, Haman is threatening the annihilation of the Jewish population, I'm a Jew, king, do something about it. What strikes me is that she is utilizing what we will call this morning wisdom in the realm of delayed disclosure. She is looking for God's providential way to set up a situation where the when and the where and the how converge so that she can address this evil for such a time as this. When you are facing dilemmas and challenges and difficulties of life, do you find yourself wanting to providentially, you're examining God's providence here, look for the way, the where, the when, the how, as you address the issues of life? And so now, the king and Haman went into feast. This is the seventh feast described in the book of Esther. Feasts were a place where there was political networking. If you are in the business realm, you know the value of networking and decision making. This is where decisions were made. This is where Queen Vashti was deposed and where Queen Esther was instituted. And so now, in the midst of the networking here, Esther is looking for her opportunity. She sees that there is responsibility and opportunity woven together when you understand how God works providentially. Notice that she doesn't disclose her plan immediately. She doesn't disclose her plan impulsively. Waiting upon God's timing, she is looking for the strategic moment to be able to unpack her strategic plan. Do you do that sort of thing in your workplace, in your home, in your own personal experience? Are you prone to rush? There's a difference between passivity and patience. Patient people, biblically speaking, are not passive people. Biblically patient people are looking for strategic times to interject principles of Scripture into the dilemmas of life, like Esther at this point. And so now it's the seventh feast, feast such as in the book of Daniel, where the wall had writing on it, and where Daniel has got to interpret what is happening here. God had a way, you see, of networking to people so that he could strategically implement plans for, as Esther would understand, such a time as this. And so now, it's the second day of the feast. There's a discipline to patience. This is a time of preparation. It's a time of patience. This is a time of providence. God had awakened King Ahasuerus during the night, God had brought to Ahasuerus the attention that five years had gone by Mordecai, probably the head of security, had not been properly recognized. I could see Ahasuerus' heart begin to beat. Have I let him down? Will there be a breakdown in security now because I have not properly recognized the one who oversees all? Well, Notice here that there's incredible timing in what's occurring. Esther is preparing the way. Those of you who love boxing, I love boxing. Joe Lewis became the heavyweight boxing champion in 1934. Defended the title 25 times over 15 years. Sports voice of those days, you maybe have heard of him. Bill Stern asked Joe Lewis, how he had been able to knock out his opponent so quickly in almost every fight. And after a few moments, here's your quote, he answered two things. First, I study my opponent until I know him better than he knows himself. And second, I make a plan of attack you get the impression that this is how Queen Esther is operating, with a sense of God's providence and with her own sense of spiritual patience. She is studying Haman. She wants to know him better than he knows himself. She's making her plan as in keeping with God's providence and as she does that, that is consistent with what the book of Proverbs is all about. Proverbs 16.3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So she's patiently, but not passively. Note the difference. Looking for the opportunity. And now God providentially Breaks in. Notice the queen does not initiate it. The king initiates it. But well, now, for the third time in the book of Esther, he poses this question What is your wish, Queen Esther? Now, it's profound. He doesn't ask, What is your wish, Esther? This is more than a marital relationship. This is a royal relationship. It involves authority. It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. There's her cue. Do you pick up on the cues of God's providential timing when you're dealing with the dilemmas of life? Cindy Casper writes, it was quite a few months before I realized that what I thought was a coincidental meeting had been good timing on my future husband's part. From the balcony of the church he'd seen me, deduced which exit I might be using, raced down two flights of stairs, arrived seconds before I did, and as he casually held the door and struck up a conversation, I was oblivious to the fact that his, quote, unquote, impromptu dinner invitation had been preplanned. It was perfect timing. Notice the convergence of God's providence and biblical planning. And so she is working the strategy now, and she understands very Thoroughly, the value of the time of preparation, the time of patience, the time for providence to wake up this king, and now for this king to pose the question to her rather than for her to say, you remember when you promised me such and such? You You see God's fingerprints in all this? Are you looking for God's fingerprints in the dilemmas of your life? So now, when evil threatens us, you know, first of all, how God uses what we'll call delayed disclosure. She's not impulsive here. She doesn't address things immediately here, though she could, but looks for perfect timing from the perfect God to orchestrate the perfect situation, delayed disclosure to achieve his purposes, which is what God does as well in prophetic, teachings throughout the Bible where he builds upon prophecy upon prophecy what Jesus did in his parables where he built one upon another delayed disclosure but ultimate disclosure it leads you now second of all in the usages to this that when evil threatens us I want you to note furthermore how God uses what we'll call timely confrontation to achieve his purposes verse 3 After the, after the king poses the question, Queen Esther answered, and she's ready. Are you ready to respond when God works providentially? Notice the ifs. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. In other words, she's not going to presume anything here. That's wisdom. No assumptions. Now, notice the twofold statement. She begins with the personal: "Let my life be granted me from my wish." And I can almost see Ahashverosh's face beginning to twitch. Your life. Queen Esther, why is your life in jeopardy? But then she adds this, which builds curiosity and my people for my request. Now thus far, the king has not even done his homework as to and what people group is she from. She's Jewish. And this is fascinating here. He talks, about, he talks about the opportunity to fulfill a promise and lo and behold here now, she's talking about her life personally and her people ethnically. What's going on? How do you understand this? And what are the issues of the hour here that are beginning to unfold in front of our, front of our very eyes? And I thought about that. There's something that comes out of the Wall Street Journal. And it's out of the book section. It's entitled Anatomy of a Genocide by Omar Bartoff. I'll read just a portion and then more in weeks to come. But what caught my eye in picking out a small section in the Ukraine where people had previously coexisted, Semites and non-Semites, all of a sudden there was an anti-Semitic rousing in the midst of the World War II time period. And people that had previously been on good terms all of a sudden start annihilating the Jewish population. And the writer tells us many of the perpetrators were known as decent folk before the killings began. Not displaying any particular tendencies toward violence or ideologically fueled hatred. And afterward, they were able to return to their normal lives without a trace of their capacities. For cruelty or any indication of remorse or shame. The bloodshed seemingly left no Stain. Do you wrestle with these kinds of things? You see, in a world where people don't grapple with the sinfulness of sin, such people don't grapple with the reality of evil. And then they are taken aback when they're confronted by it. She's talking about her Jewishness. But thus far, she has still not used the word Jew. She just talks about my people. In the book, The Fire of Your Life, Maggie Ross recounts the story of Emma, a survivor of the Holocaust who regularly at 4 p.m. every day in Manhattan uh, stood outside of a church and screamed insults at Jesus Christ. till finally, one of the pastors went outside and said to Emma, well, Why don't you go inside and tell him? And she disappeared into the church. An hour went by, and the pastor concerned decided to look in on her. He found her in the sanctuary, prostrate before the cross, absolutely still. And reaching down, he touched her shoulder, She looked up with tears in her eyes and said quietly, After all, he was a Jew too. You begin to ponder the way in which God has preserved his plan of the Jews to bring Christ into the world, And then God has preserved the Jews for the second coming of Christ. My wife has some Ashkenazi Jewishness in her. And so she likewise has got to be able to think through the way in which God in his preserving ways has worked out this plan. Well, now, in this five, King Ahasuerus said to Queen
1: Esther, Da, who is he? Let me stay right there.
0: You would think that there had been proper vetting. I mean, if I'm in leadership, I, I want to vet. I want to know everything. I want to understand. I want to connect my dots. Who is he? Haven't you picked up the tone of anti-Semitism?
1: He's your right-hand man. Who has
0: dared to do this? Notice Esther's response here she said she doesn't shout out haman does she she builds her case a foe and an enemy
1: this wicked haman
0: oh man can you imagine what's going through his
1: mind right now when you and i are told
0: that haman was terrified before the king and the queen Now, I don't know about you, but I I grapple with these things. I wrestle with these things. Why can't people detect evil in this fallen world? When Pam and I were leaving the movie that I alluded to a few weeks ago, The Darkest Hour, what was running in my mind when I went in to see the movie initially was, why was it that Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain could not recognize the evil intent of Hitler while the next Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, could. But as I was leaving, there was a page in the book, Kingdoms in Conflict, by Chuck Colson that captured my thought process. He said, first of all, there was great revulsion in England over the senseless butchery of trench warfare in the First World War. The country had little stomach to fight again. Chamberlain himself had lost a cousin, his closest friend, and he had never stopped grieving. But now listen carefully. A second factor why Chamberlain did not recognize evil Chamberlain had grown up in a tight-knit Unitarian family that rejected the Christian belief in Christ's divinity and humanity's sinfulness. Preferring to place faith in the innate supposed goodness and reasonableness of men. And influential Britons of all backgrounds were infected by this thinking. Hitler gave Chamberlain more than adequate evidence that he was evil. Yet the Prime Minister could not, would not see it. Now what you and I ponder at this point is this. Certainly when we go to the polls to vote year by year, one of the questions we've got to ask ourselves is, people on the slate, do they have a comprehension of what constitutes evil? Because laws are prevention in this land and the courts are there for purpose, to maintain a sense of justice. In Hitler's Germany, his justice was injustice. Do people understand the significance of all this? These are the questions I was ruminating over as I left that theater. And how theology affects the way in which we approach the dilemmas and the decisions of life. Ahash, where Ash, this man has been standing next to you did you not even get some, some indicators of what might take place? And do you realize that you had passively and implicitly allowed for an edict to go out handing Haman the signet ring that there would be the annihilation of the Jews? And thus far, thus far Esther has not even referred to herself as a Jew. There's subtlety here. But there's subtlety when you're dealing with the complexities of life in your everyday decision-making. So now when evil threatens us, you notice how God uses, first of all, delayed disclosure to achieve his purposes out of one and two. Preparations, the patience, the providence. And second of all, how when evil threatens us, how God uses timely confrontations to achieve his purposes. But now, there's more here. Because thirdly, when evil threatens us, I want you to note with me how God uses what I'm going to call sudden turnarounds to achieve his purposes. Verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath from the wine-drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Pause. This past week has been Purim in the Jewish community globally. And I can imagine how the groggers began to shake. That's what they used, the noisemakers in Purim. Whenever Haman's name is mentioned, it's kind of like their version of a Mardi Gras, you see. But what happens at this point is that here is Haman seeking to preserve his life from a Jew, when all along... He has been positioning himself to take life from the Jews.
1: Do you see how God creates
0: reversals in life? And how patience and planning can fit under the realm of providence?
1: Well now. He saw that harm was determined against him by the king.
0: The king's processing. Again from the Proverbs, the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. You see. Verse 8. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling... See that word falling on the couch where Esther was? Draw a line back to Esther 6, verse 12 and 13, where Haman's family was very prescient. Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zerosh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, and his wise men and his wife Zerosh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to, there's your word, fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Meanwhile, he is falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, From what I've studied in history, Ahasuerus, known as Xerxes, was an incredibly impulsive man. That's why he didn't vet. Likewise, it's how he conducted military affairs. It's why he lost the Bay of Salamis in 480 B.C. The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own own
1: house? For him, appearance is reality, you know. Well, as the word left his mouth, as the word left the mouth of
0: the king, they covered Haman's face, which is ironic again, and I can hear it in the synagogues this past week. Because back in chapter 6, verse 12, when Mordecai returned to the king's gate, Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Now he finds his head being covered. When in verse 9, one of the eunuchs comes up with this idea, moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Now some of you, some of you might recall an event that occurred in nineteen sixty-two. Most of you don't. But in 1962, Adolf Eichmann was found in South America. Eichmann had overseen the extermination camps during World War II, the annihilation of the Jews. And so the Israeli secret services, known as the Mossad, they're brilliant. First rate, made their way into Argentina. It's a story worth reading online. Got him on a plane and flew him to Israel, where he was put on trial, war trials. Subsequently, he was hanged. In his poignant book, Deliver Us from Evil, Ravi Zacharias records a bit of the scenario and sees the linkage between Eichmann and 62, and where Haman is positioned in the book of Esther. Similarities and differences. Adolf Eichmann went to the gallows with great dignity. He had asked for a bottle of red wine and had drunk half of it. He refused the help of a pastor who had offered to read the Bible with him, He had only two more hours to live and therefore, quote, no time to waste, unquote. He walked the 50 yards from his cell to the execution chamber, calm and erect, with his hands bound behind him. And when the guards tied his hands, his ankles, his knees, he asked them to loosen the bonds so that he could stand straight. I don't need that, he said, when the black hood was offered him. He was in complete command of himself. Nay, he was more, he was completely himself. The ultimate epitome of evil. He proceeded then to say after a short while, gentlemen, we shall all meet again, such is the fate of all men. Long live Germany, long live Argentina, long live Austria. I shall not forget them. And in the last sentence of this paragraph, It was as though in those last minutes he was summing up the lesson, the lesson of the fearsome, overlooked essence of evil. And some are like Chamberlain's who see the innocence of life in this fallen world affected by original sin while others, like Churchill, understand the value of the darkest hour when the skies became darkened with Christ on the cross, evil was addressed, the penalty of sin paid, and then light would reappear, and three days later, Jesus would be raised from the dead. And what we find in the complexities of all this that we are pondering here is that like Haman and Mordecai's reversal, a precursor to the ultimate reversal, when Christ dies on a cross, Good Friday and three days later is raised from the dead Easter Sunday, Ponder now the paradigm that is occurring here where justice and mercy are found in this same story. For as Haman experiences justice at the end of chapter 7, Mordecai experiences mercy at the beginning of chapter 8. Pick it up. On that day of verse 1, chapter 8. King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of, Haman, the Jew, receives the house of the anti-Semite, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai, Mordecai came before the king. For Esther, you see here, had told what he was to her. This is the first time the king and Mordecai meet. But now, see the ironies. You don't see the groggers in the synagogue at this point this past week. With the ultimate irony, the king took off his signet ring. He had been complicit, you know, giving that ring to Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And now you see how justice and mercy under God's providential workings are not contradictory but complementary helping us to better understand the cross of Jesus Christ where justice comes down upon sin and mercy is given to the sinner. He gave it to Mordecai, she gives it to Mordecai and Esther irony of ironies who was raised by Mordecai as an orphan. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman And I think what Esther would want to say to you and to me in the midst of this fallen world is, hey, this is no time to go wobbly. Recognize original sin. Don't be shocked by what you see globally, nationally, and so on when it comes to the tragedies of life. But don't take on the naivety of a chamberlain, deal with the real realities that are found in the scriptures, become like a Churchill at that point, stand strong, and continue to live for Jesus for such a time as this.
1: Let's stand together.
0: We see justice and mercy here, not one to the exclusion of the other. That's real reality. We see the incredible balance here, justice and mercy. We see how all this fits together in your providential workings generation by generation. We see what Hitler viewed as the Jewish problem
1: and understand
0: your strategy is the Jewish solution. Where Jesus, born a Jew, entered into this world, facing the threats of anti-Semitism by a King Herod. We go to the cross where King of the Jews was placed over his head and die in our place for our sins. The ultimate turnaround three days later raised from the dead. So we're not surprised, then, that if the evil one could not thwart the first coming, he would try to thwart the second coming, and thus the various pogroms, holocaust, further attempts of annihilation. We realize there's a second coming that's part of this strategy. So help us to deal with real reality and not shy away from it. Be biblical at all times and relevant for all ages. And be wise as people, recognizing that you are God and we are not. And Jesus died for our sins. We are to trust him and him alone for salvation and live for him. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.